In Japanese folklore, yokai are the spirits, demons, and monsters that haunt our world, taking the form of plants, animals, objects, humans, or natural phenomenon. These yokai usually possess spiritual or supernatural abilities. Kitsune is a yokai taking the form of a fox, though it is also known to shapeshift into a human. It prefers to reside in abandoned homes, is extremely intelligent, omnivorous, and fond of deep-fried tofu. Though some kitsune offer wisdom and protection to humans, more often they prefer mischief, possession, and evil. A favorite target being greedy merchants, the kitsune would use illusions to steal and publicly humiliate their victim. Kitsune suke means the state of being possessed by a fox. The fox may possess and enter their victim beneath their fingernails. Sometimes the victim's face and expressions are said to change, resembling that of a fox. Exorcism by a priest is preferable, but if none are available, the victim may be beaten or burned in order to drive the kitsune out. Though in the end, yokai may be a product of the imagination. There once lived an evil that, like the yokai, came in many shapes and forms. A monster that haunted Japan from 1984 to 1985, and was very real. This is the monster with 21 faces. Last time, Arson at two Glico plants resulted in the formation of Nationwide Case 114. A woman's recorded voice heard over the phone adds her to the list of suspects as the criminal group names themselves the Monster with 21 Faces. Letters arrive to the media threatening to lace Glico products with poison, causing stores to remove them completely. Nagaoka Perfumery, an associate of Glico, is drawn into the case alongside its business partner for several failed extortion attempts by the criminals. Police. Unaware of the recent proceedings, Catch Wind, joining Nagaoka Perfumery and Glico in their next meeting with the monster. Episode 3 Not Even Sherlock Holmes Listener Discretion is Advised June 2nd, 1984, 7 p.m., one hour before their dinner date with the monster at the restaurant Daidoman. Investigators load 300 million yen into the back seat of a white Corolla at Glico headquarters. The cash is divided into 160 million yen and 140 million yen, which fill two white Boston-style bags. Two Glico general managers, Tetsuo Matsushima and Aiji Takamori, both over 45 years old and dressed in white blazers and white pants, as requested in the extortion letter, get into the Corolla and leave Glico headquarters. The two Glico managers parked the Corolla loaded with cash in Dinomont's parking lot at 7.57 p.m. One of the Glico managers remains in the Corolla while the other enters the restaurant. His suit is equipped with a hidden microphone for the rest of the police operation to monitor. The Glico manager sits down in the left side of the restaurant at the window as instructed by the monster. Daidoman, a barbecue restaurant in Setsu City, Osaka, is located about two kilometers from the flood control warehouse used to hold Katsuhisa Izaki. Setting the scene around the restaurant are transportation companies, the Osaka Takasu Rail Line, warehouses, a nine-story apartment building, auto parts stores, supermarkets, and heavy traffic. Along the main street, side streets, and various other points, an elite team of 30 undercover officers from Osaka's Special Crime Squad 
take up a tactical position. In the parking lot of the restaurant, a pair of investigators in plain clothes are posed as husband and wife sitting in their car. Several investigators had even brought children and family members as cover and occupied the tables inside the restaurant, equipped with hidden radios. All options were considered by investigation headquarters, and no chances were being taken. Coiled like a snake and ready to strike, the operation had yet another trick up their sleeve. The white Corolla, now sitting in the parking lot of Didomon, was modified with a kill switch, located in the trunk, designed for use by an investigator hidden within. Step one of the plan, when the criminals steal the money vehicle, undercover investigators parked on the street would confront the criminal, forcing them into turning onto a side street approximately 500 meters away from the restaurant, where the kill switch, flipped by the investigator in the trunk, would bring the vehicle to a stop. However, one limitation to the setup of this vehicle's braking system is that it uses exhaust from the engine to operate. Therefore, the kill switch could not be flipped while the vehicle was in motion, or it would crash without the use of its brakes. This meant that communication, cooperation, and timing was essential to pulling off this trap. The trunk was also modified to allow the armed investigator to open it from within in the event the vehicle escaped police pursuit, and he was the last resort in stopping the criminals. Step two of the plan, on the designated side street, lying in wait and manned by an undercover officer, was an identical white Corolla with the same license plate as the one filled with the cash. Unknown to any member of the criminal gang observing the scene, the officer would take the original Corolla's place back on the main road, driving away from Didomon. Arrested and interrogated, the captured criminal would hopefully provide his intended destination, which would be radioed to the officer driving the replacement Corolla, allowing police to follow it to the criminal's meeting spot, where they could arrest the remaining members of the group. Investigators joked that they were living in a James Bond film, however, they remained serious overall, as careful preparation of the operation was crucial to ensuring the safety of investigators along with the capture of the criminals. Leader 1 and Leader 2, also referred to as L1 and L2, were command posts set up to monitor the operation. L1 was located at the Osaka Police Headquarters. L2 was an undercover van located in the area of Daidomam. In L2, Detective Aumi Matsuda was tasked with tracking the movements of the investigators and relaying the information back to L1. Using a large map of the site spread out in the van, the detective set up pieces, visualizing the trap as he stayed in radio contact with command at L1. Also being tracked were the license plates of vehicles that passed by the restaurant for further investigation should the criminals be in the area watching. At 8 o'clock p.m., L1 called for radio silence except from the money car parked at Didomon and the Glico manager within. Investigators sit and wait as they listen for their next move. The monster instructed that they would call Nagaoka Perfumery at 8.30 p.m. However, at 8.45 p.m., a young man in his 20s with a scratch on his face walks into the restaurant Didomon and up to the seat of the Glico manager. In front of the Glico manager, the man sets a small note, reading, Are you Nakamura from Toshoku? The Glico manager answers, Yes. Still without word, the man hands over another slip of paper, reading, Give me the key. The Glico manager slides the man the key, who swiftly picks it up and exits the restaurant. Investigators watch the man approach the Corolla in the parking lot and force the driver out. 
the engine roars to life, and the Corolla filled with 300 million yen speeds off north. Detective Matsuda, in L2, moving pieces on his map, relayed investigators' movements to L1 as the pursuit began. The plan to coerce the criminal in the money car into turning left onto the side street with the identical Corolla waiting was underway. Timing and communication with the investigator in the trunk were key to making a smooth trade-off between the Corolla filled with cash and the replacement Corolla that was tasked with completing the drive to the criminal's meeting location. However, radio contact with the investigator in the trunk was lost, and he was forced to rely on the timing they had planned for. Hitting the kill switch, luckily, as the driver slowed the vehicle for an upcoming red light, the car came to a halt in the middle of the main road just short of the side street at 8.48 p.m. Investigators approached the vehicle with weapons drawn, joining the investigator who had by now exited the trunk. The driver put his hands up, terrified and shaking. He exclaimed, They took my girlfriend. Please help her. Confusion set in as investigators took the seemingly innocent man into custody. Battered and frightened, he was questioned further on his way to Niagawa Station. 3.2 kilometers from the Daidoman restaurant, along a well-paved dike road maintained by the Ministry of Construction, running parallel to the Kamagawa and its riverbed park, occupied by tennis courts, baseball fields, soccer fields, and a playground, and located behind the Osaka Prefecture Freshwater Fish Test Station, at 8.15 p.m., 30 minutes before his arrest, the 22-year-old man who will soon steal the Corolla and his 18-year-old girlfriend are listening to music on the car's FM radio and enjoying a romantic evening in his white Toyota. Four to five centimeters of the man's window was open for fresh air, and from the dark, a rifle barrel was stuck through it and pressed into his shoulder. The man turned to see three figures outside his car. One appeared unarmed, one had a rifle, and one had a fruit knife. The man pushed the car door open and jumped out, attempting to fight back. He was a former self-defense force member and was confident in his ability to defend himself and his date. However, the man was struck by the criminals and scratched. He was then pushed back into his car by the unarmed criminal. The knife-wielding criminal opened the woman's door and pointed his weapon to her neck. I'll take care of the woman, he said. The criminal then took her to another car stopped on the dike road about 20 meters behind. The unarmed and rifle-wielding criminals who attacked the man join him in his Toyota. One directs him where to go with a low voice. Drive where we say. Go south on the dike road and turn right and get onto the bridge. Turn left off the bridge. They arrive near the restaurant where the man is instructed on what to do and reminded of his girlfriend's well-being before he is set loose on Daidoman. Taking up the driver's seat of the Toyota, the criminals drive away in the man's car. The kidnapped 18-year-old woman sits, panicking, in the rear seat of her abductor's vehicle. Her hands are bound in front, and she is partially blinded by a thin cloth covering her head. The air smells strongly of pickled bonito fish oil. The vehicle moves slowly, through the otherwise peaceful night. Slowing to a stop a few minutes later, the vehicle's engine is shut off. The driver sits in silence. The woman's anxiety soars. 
looking at her surroundings through her blindfold. The woman can see trees and three motorcycles passing by in succession. After that, though she knows they should still be near roads and tracks, no car or train sounds can be heard. They are alone. The driver exits the vehicle, disappearing into the quiet night, leaving the woman alone, bound and blinded in the rear seat. After 30 to 40 minutes, the criminal returns to his seat, starts the engine, and continues driving another 7 to 8 minutes. The woman struggles to make out a highway and footbridge through her blindfold. The vehicle stops again and waits. This pattern continues as the woman's terror level climbs. After a final drive of four to five minutes, the vehicle turns left coming to a stop. It is set in park with the engine left running. It is 9.30 p.m., one hour and 15 minutes since her abduction. I have to meet my friends at Niigawa Station at half past 10, says the criminal, as a lever in the car is pulled, opening the rear door next to the woman. She hears the driver's door open. The criminal exits and walks around to her. She screams as she is taken out and stood up. Please don't hurt me. Look forward, replies the criminal. The woman listens and stands still. The criminal pulls the cloth blindfold from her head. She can briefly see that she is facing away from the car. Cover your eyes, says the criminal. The woman covers her eyes with her hands, which are then unbound. Do you have money? The criminal asks. The woman shakes her head. No. Then feels paper being placed into her palm. If you wait ten minutes, you will see your ride. With those final words, the criminal walks back to the driver's seat and enters the vehicle. The woman hears the rear door closing as it drives off slowly towards northeastern Kyoto. Nearly 80% of automatic car door systems in the Keihan area are made and sold by auto parts manufacturers in Fukushima, Osaka. The woman's testimony placed the model as either a Toyota Crown or Nissan Cedric. The vehicle was likely once used as a Japanese taxi, with a mechanism for the driver to open and close the rear door from the driver's seat. The woman remains still for a moment, before turning around to see that she is standing across the street from the Keihan Electric Railway, Kozenji Station, located two kilometers from her place of abduction. She looks in her hand, finding the criminal had left 2,000 yen for train fare. Her boyfriend, now being held at Niigawa Police Station, had told investigators at the scene of his arrest that the money car was to be brought back to the place of his abduction, just over the bridge crossing the river in the nearby Waterside Park. When questioned on his stolen Toyota, the man stated that he had just purchased it three days prior and could not recall the license plate number, hindering the search for it and his kidnapped girlfriend. Moments after the arrest of the man, as planned, the Corolla is restarted and driven by an investigator toward the destination described as the criminal's meeting location. Frustrated by the heavy traffic while crossing the bridge over the Kamagawa River toward Niigawa, 
The investigator driving the Corolla eventually makes it through, turning left off the bridge and onto a road toward the river embankment. As the Corolla climbed a gentle slope, a suspicious white Toyota appeared, driving to the right of the investigator in the oncoming lane. The suspicious vehicle speeds up and around, taking lead in front of the money car. As he quickly neared the area the arrested man stated was the meeting place of the criminals, the investigator decided to bypass it, instead now pursuing the very suspicious white Toyota. Coming upon a busy six-lane road, the investigator was forced to a screeching halt as the suspicious car slipped through the stoplight moments after it turned red. Unable to pursue with heavy traffic now blocking, and no lights and sirens, the investigator was unable to pursue the vehicle. He turned back and proceeded to the meeting location on the third lane leading to the dike road as designated by the criminal. The investigator waited, hoping to salvage the catastrophe that the Didoman operation had become. As expected, no criminals appeared, and the operation was called off after 10 p.m. I was told not to turn around. If I acted weird, then I was as good as dead. There was nowhere for me to turn, so I was in a position here. I had to do what I was told. I followed the criminal's commands. The abducted woman's testimony was collected at Niigawa Police Station. Investigators discovered she lived in a dormitory in Kadoma, Osaka, and was working part-time at the Asahi newspaper as an announcer who had been hosting a show at a private television station on Kyushu Island for the past six months. The abducted man's testimony revealed that he lived in a housing complex in Niigawa City and was working at a sales office for a company that had dealings with Glico, located close to the flood control warehouse. Because of their abductions and jobs at the Asahi newspaper and at a Glico associate, the man and woman were a target of intrigue for the media, even after police had cleared them of suspicion. They were released from the Niigawa police station on June 3rd, the morning following their abduction. Also that morning, the abducted man's stolen car was found on the approach of the Tomorogi Shrine in Niigawa, less than 500 meters from the location of the man and woman's date, and just under 300 meters from the red light that the investigator driving the bait car lost the suspicious vehicle at. It would seem that the criminals abandoned the stolen car here shortly after eluding this investigator. The shrine is a lonely place with few visitors. There is speculation the culprit is familiar with the area. On the driver's seat, a fruit knife and plastic sheath are collected. On the passenger seat, a blindfold bag is taken into evidence as well. According to reports by the investigation headquarters, the plastic sheath had a length of 20 centimeters. The 18 centimeter long fruit knife was manufactured in Seki, Gifu Prefecture, the knife and sword capital of Japan, and was one of more than 200,000 pieces produced since 1978. It was a popular, mass-produced product sold in supermarkets. No further leads could be found. The blindfold was a piece of cloth folded in four and stapled tight. When unfolded, it measured 96 centimeters long and 66 centimeters wide. 
This cotton fabric was manufactured by Koizumi in Osaka City from January to April 1984 and sold in supermarkets. At 10.10 p.m. the previous night, as investigators ended their operation, a nearby shopkeeper witnessed a suspicious ivory Nissan Laurel which had been stopped in the same area the man's stolen Toyota was found. This Nissan Laurel is the same type of car seen at the Glico Arson and Water Defense Warehouse. The early morning edition of the Mainichi newspaper showed the headline, Glico Arrest. It was a scoop for the newspaper, but it was not accurate, and by the final edition of their paper, the headline and article were removed. However, it was too late, as it was now public knowledge that the police conducted an operation at Daidoman. Until now, this attempt at catching the criminals was so secret that some investigators working on the case were not made aware of it until the media reported it, creating anger and distrust within the police. The failure at Dairoman was a major hit in credibility for the police and Glico. It's said that Katsuhisa Izaki, who had been mostly cooperative for months, was now angry at investigators. The relationship between police, the media, and the victim company Glico was now broken thanks to the monster with 21 faces. On the night of June 7th, Hiroyuki Hirano, a chief investigator, held a press conference on the case at Niigawa Station, publishing details of the abductions and a description of the criminals. The suspects who abducted the man and woman wore black masks and white gloves. Suspect A is around 45 years old, 168 centimeters tall, had a low voice, and carried a rifle. Suspect B is around 30 years old, and 173 centimeters tall. Suspect C, who abducted and held the woman captive, was described as around 25 to 30 years old. He carried a fruit knife. Read in part, an article published on June 9, 1984, reads, Headline, Who's After the Man Behind Glico Pocky? Once the munch of millions, Pocky chocolate sticks and Kittyland cookies are now avoided by many Japanese like the plague. This is ever since Japanese newspapers published the warning, eat Glico products and go to your grave. Headline, share price has plummeted. Sales are down dramatically with $10.5 million lost in just 10 days. 1,000 workers are being laid off. No poison candy has yet been found. The poison threat is the latest twist in Japan's most bizarre, and for police, infuriating, kidnapping and extortion case. Stung by the taunts, police have mobilized a task force of 2,000 sleuths to track down the culprits, with 100 assigned just to look for the extremely rare typewriter the gang is thought to have used. So far, there is little real evidence, and police are still searching for a motive. Among those being considered are... In merging two subsidiaries two years ago, Mr. Izaki put many people out of work. His high-handedness did not fit well with the Japanese tradition of lifetime employment, and there is speculation that some of those made redundant may have sought revenge. The company may have angered some Sokaya company extortionists by refusing to buy them off. Until a law was passed two years ago, most Japanese companies paid off Sokaya to keep the peace and shorten the length of annual general meetings. Often the money was to prevent the disclosure of some piece of dirt on the company dug up by the Sokaya. Someone in the company may have run foul of the local Yakuza, or gangsters, notably the powerful Yamaguchi Gumi Gang, whose turf is the Osaka district where Mr. Izaki lives and works. Quote, I do not have the slightest idea of anyone who has any ill feeling towards me, Mr. Izaki claims. Quote, the abductors just want ransom money. Headline, is the whole thing being engineered? The ransom first demanded, $4 million plus 100 kilograms of gold bullion, 
was unrealistic enough for a medium-sized company. Later, the demand became just $250,000. One theory being widely canvassed is that the gang is deliberately driving down the share price to make a fortune later. Another gaining currency in the popular press, which is devoting even more energy to the case than the police, is that the whole thing is being engineered from inside the owning family. Other newspaper articles published by Asahi on June 7th and 10th reported to the public for the first time that the criminal group's aim seemed to be in conducting a backdoor deal with companies. The information reported indicated Glico had attempted back-to-back transactions with the monster in late May without the assistance of police. Newspapers let the cat out of the bag with headlines such as Glico trying to get in touch with the criminal. It's said that an executive at Glico, at an internal conference, expressed his wish for a protest of the Asahi newspaper. On June 11, 1984, police began a search of 800,000 homes in Japan, asking door-to-door for any information on the crimes, criminals, or associated evidence. Another press conference was held on the second-floor conference room of Niigawa Citizens Hall, just after 3 p.m. on the 12th. The man abducted on the night of June 2nd was present, wearing a gray suit with a light blue shirt. He had scars on his face from the attack. The press conference prohibited photography and television cameras. During the conference, the abducted man was to be referred to as A-Man, while the abducted woman was named B-Woman. Questions were prepared in advance and asked by a member of the police press club, a very limited but trusted group of media members. A-Man recalled the events from his abduction to his arrest, additionally stating that he nearly lost consciousness when struck by the criminals and didn't realize immediately that B-Woman had been taken away. A-Man could not recall any conversation between the two criminals that forced him to drive to Daidomam. When prompted what he would ask the criminals if possible, A-Man just wanted to know why himself and B-Woman were targeted, following up with concern that other innocent citizens could become victims. The interview was cut off at the scheduled 30 minutes. On the 22nd of June, a letter arrives at the Takatsuki home of another Japanese food company president, Takashi Haga, president of Marudai Food. Katsuhisa Izaki's tape is included, confirming its authenticity. Dear Haga, I hope you know about us. Your company did so well because of Glico's mishaps. You should give us some of the money you have due to their failures. Don't you feel bad for not giving us any money? Give us 50 million yen with used 10,000 yen bills. Put 10 million yen in each white bag and wait at Ota's house in Nichiyoshida. Have a company's driver in a white car waiting in front of the house. On Thursday, June 28th at 8pm, I will call 0726-871234. Say, it's Yamada when you pick up the phone. I'll tell you where the letter is. Once you get the call, start moving. Once you read the letter, immediately follow the directions. Ota should wear a white blazer. I won't do anything to Ota. If you can't decide on your own, just talk to Komori, Kudara, and Takana. If you don't listen to what we say and obey us, you'll fall into the same situation as Glico. We know a lot about Fushimi and Yamateko. If you tell the police, we'll abduct your employees. We're stronger than the police. We have hydrochloric acid, potassium cyanide, dynamite, and guns. It's easy to put potassium cyanide in things. 
Just get a syringe and we can put it in ham, sausage, and anything else. I'll let you listen to Katsuhisa's voice while he was being abducted. If you're going to give us the money, put this advertisement up on Mainichi and Sanke for the Kinki region on the 26th and 27th of June. Looking for part-timers. Advertisement and salesperson. Under age 35. A healthy lady. 500 yen an hour. Transportation fee provided. Contact Marodai Food Incorporated. Personnel Department. Monster with 21 faces. I love the snacks that Glico makes, but since the criminals say that they put poison in them, I cannot buy any snacks and that makes me very sad. So I want the criminals to be arrested soon so I can eat the snacks again. The letter was sent to Katsuhisa Izaki by a girl named Tomoko, currently in the second grade, living in Saga Prefecture. Encouraged by this letter, Glico replied, publishing it in an advertisement in several newspapers, along with a reply on June 24th. Thank you, Tomoko-chan. Glico will do our best. Glico's head office explained to their advertisers that they had prepared this wholesome press to improve their public image one month prior after consulting with investigation headquarters. Izaki Glico mainly advertised on television. However, around this time, commercials were put on hold so as to not provoke the monster further. June 26, 1984. A letter arrives at Mainichi, Sankei, and Yomiri newspapers. In the envelope of Sankei's letter is a copy of Katsugisa's tape. To our fans throughout Japan, we're satisfied. The president of Glico has gone around with his head hanging down long enough. We would like to forgive him. In our group, there's a four-year-old kid. Every day he cries for Glico. We also haven't eaten any for a long time, and we used to eat it quite often. It's a drag to make a kid cry because he's deprived of the candy he loves. So we're also pretty upset. It would be great if we could forgive Glico so supermarkets could sell their products again. We've destroyed 18 chocolates that had acid in them. We left one on the 9th of May in the Dai store in Ibaraki Prefecture, but we don't know what happened with it. We went to collect one at a different store on the 18th of May. Japan has gotten terribly hot and humid. So when our work is done, we want to go to Europe. Zurich, Paris, or even London. We'll be in one of those places. Police, you did well. Continue with your hard work. Not even Sherlock Holmes could solve this case. If you read The Fiend with 20 faces, you'll learn a lot. The police's European tour. Let's go to Europe to catch the monster with 21 faces. Let's bring Glico's Pocky, the traveler's friend. Delicious Glico products. We're eating them too. Monster with 21 faces. I'll be back next year in January. Postmarked in Kyoto the day before, between 6 p.m. and midnight, the envelope listed the sender as the monster with 21 faces. Was the monster bored? Had they pushed their luck? Were their demands met secretly? Hope was high that the case had come to an end. And for Izaki Glico, it had. For now. However, Marudai Food, unaware of the full scope of things, posts the requested job advertisement in the Mainichi and Sankai newspapers that day and the next. The fact that Marudai was now involved in the case was kept between the company and investigators. June 28, 1984. It's a quiet night during the rainy season. 
50 million in used 10,000 yen bills, divided into white bags, sits in a white Corolla with a company driver, parked outside the Takatsuki home of Marudai Foods managing director, Yoshiro Oda. Marudai had contacted Osaka Prefectural Police for assistance, who had decided to carry out the operation alone in an attempt to close the case themselves, refusing to ask Kyogo or neighboring police forces to bring additional support. The monster promised to call at 8 o'clock p.m. Three minutes later, the phone rings. Ota answers, It's Yamada. As directed, a voice recording of a woman plays into the receiver of the unknown caller. The back of the tourist information map at the city bus platform south of Mitsui Bank of Seibu Department Store in Takatsuki. A special criminal investigator of Osaka's Prefectural Police Investigation Division, posing as Oda, put on a white blazer jacket as requested in the letter. In addition, to sell the look, the investigator shaved the top of his head to resemble the balding executive. Followed discreetly by fellow undercover investigators, the undercover Osaka investigator carrying the money departed from the house in the white Corolla as instructed in the initial letter. The investigator arrived at 8.16 p.m. to find an envelope taped to the back of a bus stop guideboard. To Yamada, as soon as you read this, move immediately. Take the ticket and go to Takatsuki Station. Take the 819 Kyoto-bound train that stops at every station. It is a yellow train. Get on the second car from the back and sit on the left side marked with the circle. Either circle is fine. Ride the train alone, Yamada. If the seats in the circled area are not available, say that you feel sick and have someone give up their seat. Sit on the side with the tracks and open the window so that you can throw out the bag. At this part of the letter is a diagram of the rear train cars with circled spots indicating where to sit. The diagram indicates Osaka and Kyoto's direction, as well as specifying the train as, quote, the yellow train bound for Kyoto that stops at every station. The letter continues. Perceive. Don't you see the one meter square white flag? Throw the bag out of the window. Go to Kyoto and if there is no flag, then do it again. When you retry, contact me. In the envelope, along with the letter, was Katsuhisa's voice recording on tape. As well, the monster provided a train ticket for the 340 yen section. Investigators on the case were concerned that their radios could not be used within the train, which would effectively cut off communication to headquarters. However, at Takatsuki Station, the investigator carrying the money bag, too late for the instructed 819 train, boards the train from Takatsuki Station, bound for Kyoto, at 8.35, surrounded by seven fellow undercover officers. Instructed by headquarters, the money carrier disobeyed the letter's instructions of boarding the second-to-last train car, instead getting into the leading train car on the left side seat, with the goal being to force any criminals on board to reveal themselves should they move about the train in search of Oda carrying the money. Investigators aboard the train initially confirmed two suspicious passengers. One was a man about 50 years old, wearing a bright blazer with a bag who had been on the train before they boarded and got off at a station between Takatsuki and Kyoto. The man was seen looking at the investigator carrying the money bag and was described as being restless. The other was a slender man about 30 years old, operating a large radio with an antenna. At that time, it was rare for people to carry radios and it was thought maybe he was trying to match the radio used by police as he was seen working the frequency adjustment controls. 
Soon enough, however, the more suspicious man would reveal himself to investigators. There was a man, 35 to 45 years old, about 175 to 178 centimeters in height. He had a thin lip, thin eyebrows, and was well built, wearing a gray suit and clear glasses with silver rims and short permed hair. He carried a black umbrella with a handle and a newspaper folded in four. The most striking thing to investigators, however, was his silent gaze, hunting with eyes like those of a fox. The fox-eyed man was described by investigators as looking like a young salary worker, dressed in the style of a slightly disorganized office worker, a real estate agent, a money lender, or a gangster because wearing a flashy blazer was a cheap, up-and-coming amateur Yakuza style. Being June, there were not many people wearing suits in the hot weather. His stiff posture gave investigators the impression that he was Korean, or a Korean in Japan, rather than Japanese. In addition to the man's physical description, investigators also provided first-hand impressions, describing the atmosphere of the man as being apocalyptic, lonely, and clearly different from an ordinary person. The fox-eyed man, located in the train car behind the money carrier, began looking around. Investigators riding in the same car saw the man acting suspicious, walking around, stretching, and appearing restless. Seemingly, without care or notice of the investigators, the man makes his way toward the front of the sparsely populated car, spotting the money carrier sitting in the next train car over. The fox-eyed man watches intently through the door's glass window. For 20 minutes to Kyoto Station, the fox-eyed man stood two meters from a pair of investigators posing as a couple. One investigator thought the man may have been there to scope out the situation for the criminal group. However, the man's actions were too careless. If he was caught, he could claim no knowledge or ties to the criminal group, and ignorance having interfered with the investigation. The fox-eyed man mostly watched the cash carrier and had no reason to. Investigators felt that this man was suspicious, but they did not say anything because it might be intercepted over radio. The money carrier did not see a flag and did not toss the bag from the window. The train arrived at Kyoto Station at 8.50 p.m. Exiting his car last, the undercover investigator made his way to the station schedule board. Exiting the car behind him, was the passenger with the radio and the fox-eyed man. Investigators, short-handed and under instructions to stay with the money carrier, were forced to let the radio man walk free. However, the fox-eyed man remained a part of the scene as he followed the money carrier through the station. Circling the staircase and checking below carefully before heading down himself, the fox-eyed man followed the money carrier to the lower level of the Kyoto train station with the investigators watching from a short distance away. Unsure what to do next, the investigator with the money used a payphone to consult headquarters, who instructed him to return to Takatsuki Station on the next train. The money carrier then headed into the restroom, while the fox-eyed man kept watch from behind a pillar. One of the undercover investigators following the scene also called headquarters while at Kyoto Station, asking permission to stop the fox-eyed man. They were denied, as the mission was still to apprehend the group, only when the criminals had touched the money bag. This investigator would again call for permission to stop the suspect at Kamizushi Station on the way back to Takatsuki. However, he was denied again. 
After exiting the restroom and getting a return ticket, the cash-carrying investigator returns to the platform and sits on a bench with the bag in hand. The fox-eyed man watches him from the ticket gate for a short time before he himself approaches the platform. The fox-eyed man began circling the money carrier at a distance of about three meters, like a shark on the hunt, stopping occasionally to study his prey deeply, before sitting on an adjacent bench and continuing his watch over the investigator. His movements were too obvious and theatric. Was this man here as a distraction? When the train to Takatsuki Station arrived, the money carrier boarded, and the fox snuck onto another car. Arriving back at Takatsuki, the money carrier exits the train station facility through the ticket gate under the watchful eye of the fox. An investigator waiting outside drove the money carrier back to the Maru Dai manager's house by car. The fox then boards the next train back to Kyoto. 10.17 p.m., Lying in wait at Kyoto Station to join their fellow investigators were two additional undercover officers. This was their chance to stop the man now that the money carrier was out of the picture. After exiting the train once again at Kyoto Station, the fox stood on the platform as if to wait for the next train back to Takatsuki again. The Takatsuki-bound train arrived and the crowd emptied into it, but the fox remained motionless on the platform as investigators watched. The fox then slipped past the ticket gate to an underground passage. Following the fox-eyed man down the stairs, tailing investigators lose sight of him in the crowd at 10.30 p.m. Before losing sight of the fox-eyed man, he was witnessed by investigators pulling a thousand yen bill from his pocket. It was theorized that if it was for use as taxi fare, a hideout location could be assumed to be within a distance that 1,000 yen worth of taxi fare would cover in Kyoto. Why did the investigators lose sight of the fox-eyed man? The evening rush at Kyoto Station was over, and there were relatively few commuters around. Investigators risked revealing themselves if they followed too closely. Perhaps the fox-eyed man waited for this moment to lose his pursuers on purpose. Why didn't investigators question the fox-eyed man at Kyoto Station? Investigators called their headquarters from a Kyoto Station payphone to ask permission to stop the fox-eyed man for questioning. They were denied, however, as doing so would go against the mission plan of capturing all or many criminals at once. It was suggested that he could have been detained for interfering with a police operation when he watched and followed the money-carrying investigator from the train to the bathroom, then returning to Takatsuki Station from Kyoto Station without purchasing a new ticket. The investigation's reenactment and retesting of the visibility of the white flag yielded no answers as to whether it would have been or should have been witnessed by investigators. It was either too dark out or the rain obscured vision. The train running at 100 kilometers per hour was also a factor, as well as the fact that investigators disobeyed instructions and sat in the front of the train, potentially shortening the window of opportunity to see the flag with the train's lights. It's also possible that the criminal simply didn't show the flag, and the entire operation was another stage production directed by the monster and starring undercover investigators. It has been said that the undercover investigator carrying the money did in fact see the white flag, choosing instead to not throw the bag from the window as there were no police in the area on standby to capture the criminals. He didn't want to risk losing the money. 
the man with eyes like a fox was determined to have been different in appearance from the three people who were witnessed by Katsuhisa Izaki during his abduction and the man and woman during the Daidomon operation. Internal to the investigation, the fox-eyed man was referred to as F. June 29, 1984. Katsuhisa Izaki speaks to reporters. まあ、今日のあの、総会で、あの、神田さんの質問で、その日本にその社力訪問済みたいな名探偵はいないみたいな、ご質問ございましたけども、まあ、あの、そういう、すごいれば、いいのか分かりませんけど、やはりもう警察